the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called What is a Church? Focusing on a deeper understanding of what it is that we are called to as a church and what it is that we are called to do as Christians. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. That's Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 9. We've been talking about what is a church, and we've talked about word, we've talked about sacraments, and today we're talking about discipline. Let me read these two sections of scripture, and let's remember as we hear this, that this is God's word. And so Matthew chapter 18 first, starting at verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose shall be on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And also 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 tell us this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This morning, we're going to talk about one of the aspects in church life that in my limited experience, uh, oftentimes almost totally absent. And a lot of the research says that this thing that we're going to be talking about today is absent in many, many churches. We're going to talk today about discipline, and this is going to be a tough topic because it gets at one of the central lies in Western society that no one can tell me how I should live my life. This is one of the central kind of fundamental principles of Western society, one of the fundamental assumptions that has shaped all of our souls. All of our souls have been shaped by this underlying assumption. 
There are countless examples of it. Sometimes it's implicit in the way that you or I live our life, but I'm going to give you two examples at the outset of the message. The first is the poem Invictus, which I think captures so much of contemporary, I guess, ideology or contemporary senses of the world. This is the last stanza of the poem Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That poem gets at a great deal, right? I am the one that gets to chart my own course. I'm the one that master, uh, that's the captain of my own soul. No one else gets to direct or tell me how it is that I should live my life. And more explicitly, it's laid out by one of the great theologians of our day, of course, Kanye West. And this is what he says in his, uh, in his song, Can't Tell Me Nothing. I realize this isn't any longer really a contemporary example. The song is like 10 or 11 years old, but I'm sorry. It still gets at it, right? And it's going to sound weird as I read it, but just understand this is the chorus of the song. La, 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 la. Wait, I told you it's going to sound weird, right? But this is the chorus. Wait till I get my money right. La, 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 la. Then you can't tell me nothing, right? Excuse me. Is you saying something? Uh Uh-uh. You can't tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Uh Uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing. Now that gets at exactly it, right? The contemporary sort of mindset is, you can't tell me anything. Who are you to try to tell me how it is that I should live my life? As long as my, as long as things are in order for me, or as Kanye puts it, as long as my money's right, you can't tell me nothing. And the point is this. Your soul has been formed to believe that you are an entity onto yourself that you're the captain of your own soul, and that no one has the right to tell you anything. And that's a lie. The truth is that the Lord made you, that the Lord has the right to direct your life, and that it's for your good that God gives his laws and his decrees, and following God's laws and decrees will always be your benefit, and failing to keep them will always harm you. Disregarding God's laws and his ways will always bring destruction, both in this world and in the next. And so today it's important for us to take up an important and difficult topic, the topic of discipline. And discipline involves, in some ways, confrontation in some parts of it. There are three parts of discipline that I want to talk about, that the scriptures talk about, and the first is is self-discipline, and the second is formative discipline, which is also sometimes called discipling, and the third is church discipline, and so these three things are in view for us, self-discipline, formative discipline, also called discipling, and church discipline, and so the first one is self-discipline, the first aspect of discipline, and something that's talked about a fair bit in the scriptures and we read about it today is a self-discipline, and here it's important for us to realize something. The Christian faith is utterly opposed to any kind of earning. You can't earn or merit your salvation. You can't do any work to be saved. The only work that needed to be done was accomplished by Christ at the cross and through his resurrection. Because of Christ's life and death and resurrection, everything is paid. The only way that you can be saved is by trusting in Christ's finished work, not by bringing any work yourself. But the Christian faith is not opposed to effort, is not opposed to striving, is not opposed to to working hard. And that's why you have in Scripture all sorts of beautiful passages about the free offer of the gospel that comes to us 
because of Christ's work and not ours. And you also have in scripture all of these places that encourage you to work hard, to put forth effort. And so let me give you some sections of scripture. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That passage gets at so clearly the fact that it's about trusting in Christ that saves you, not in your own work. Acts 6.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You want to be saved? You trust Christ, not your own works. Romans 10 verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Ephesians 2 is so clear about it. It's not by works so that no one can boast. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is the free offer of the gospel. Trust in Christ Jesus and you will be saved. And the scriptures don't think that that is in any way in conflict with the call to exert yourself, to work, to try hard. Second Peter says, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, which he has granted to us in his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in this world because of sinful desire. So this passage starts out by talking about how he has chosen you, how he has called you to his own glory and excellence, about how he has saved you. And then it says this in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with loves. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been saved, then make every effort to add to that faith all of these virtues that are described here. Second Timothy chapter 2, when Paul here is writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving instruction to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, you be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since the aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So his instruction to Timothy, as he's carrying forward, carrying forward the gospel message is this. It's work hard. Be as committed to this as a soldier who doesn't engage in civilian pursuits. Compete like an athlete in this. Work as hard as a farmer getting up early every morning to continually do the same thing over and over again. And our passage for today from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 draws out the analogy specifically of an athlete to bring home to us the importance of self-discipline, of disciplining ourselves to be committed to the things of the Lord God. Let me read 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 again. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The command in this section of scripture from the apostle Paul, the command from scripture is very clear. Run in such a way as to receive the prize. And how does he do this? 
He talks about how he disciplines his own body, about how he keeps his body and his mind in line so that he can run, so that he can race, so that he cannot be disqualified. The sort of the, the imagery is of an athlete, of, of how an athlete is so devoted to his or her task that they have this single-minded focus to try to win. And he says, live your life as a Christian in that kind of way. The type of training that athletes go through is intense. And the really good ones are particularly committed to their craft. And I want to read to you for, a, uh, for just a little, a little section of a, an article that's about, in my opinion, the worst moment in basketball history. And for those of you that don't know instinctively or immediately what that is, it's the moment that Ray Allen hit a corner three to win game six, to go you know, into overtime. The Heat beat the Spurs then in seven games. The, the Heat, in my opinion, were an evil team that should not have won. And the Spurs were, uh, were from, uh, were probably all Christians. They were that good. That's, uh, <laughs> they, they were a good team and they should have beat the Heat. But Ray Allen with his corner, th- anyway, you know the story. Well, maybe you don't, but I'll tell you more about it afterwards. It's, st- I still can't think about it very much. I get depressed because I wanted the Heat to lose. And I wanted LeBron to come to Chicago. I'm sorry for those of you who are from Cleveland. <laughs> So uh, in Grantland, Bill Simmons writes this article about when Ray Allen hits that corner three, and he says this, I watched Ray Allen play for my favorite team for five years. He goes to the same spots and does the same things the same ways, not just for weeks or months, but for years and years and years. He's the closest thing we have to an NBA robot. He treats three-pointers like tennis players treat their serves, like golfers treat their swings, and like pitchers treat their delivery. Quick jump, quick release, perfect form, line drive, bang. Every shot looks the same. Watch Ray long enough and you instinctively realize when he's heating up, when he's shooting from a spot he likes, and when he's thrust into a situation that, even if it seems chaotic, happens to be perfect for Ray Allen and Ray Allen only. With seven seconds left in game six, suddenly we were in one of those situations and I knew just from watching him backpedal those first two steps. True story. When Ray practices threes from different parts of the court, Sometimes he blindfolds himself so he can't see the three-point line. His complicated shooting routine unfolds hours before games, like hours before games. Sometimes with cheerleaders practicing and arena employees turning the lights on and off, he practices his footwork for shooting threes as diligently as a ballerina, partly because he's a perfectionist, partly because out of basketball OCD, and partly because he's always wanted to be prepared for anything. And you know what's really crazy? Ray Allen is enough of a lovable weirdo that he practiced this specific shot. In fact, he's been practicing it since his Milwaukee days. You see what's going on there? Ray Allen devoted himself to his craft of being able to shoot threes every day. Hours and hours and hours devoted to his craft. So when the moment shone the brightest, he was able to establish his legacy with one soul-crushing corner three that had been practiced for hours and weeks and months and years before that ever took place. That's the kind of single-minded devotion that you'll often see athletes give to their craft, utterly devoted to what it is that they're called to do, and that means be the best athlete that they can possibly be. As we read 1 Corinthians 9, this kind of intensity that went into Ray Allen's game that goes into athletes' training, this kind of intensity is the kind of discipline that Paul exhorts you to give to growing in Christ. 
This means daily spending time with the Lord. It means developing habits of prayer and praise and participation in church. It means mastery over over your body in avoiding sin. It means taming the tongue. It means keeping your thoughts captive. It means developing a rhythm of life wherein everyone would see it and say, that one believes the Lord. That one is devoted to Jesus. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now more from Pastor Derek in our series called What is a Church? Focusing on a deeper understanding of what it is that we are called to as a church and what it is that we are called to do as Christians. How is it that you will cultivate your own life so that Christ is at the center of it? What things are you going to have to say no to and what things are you going to have to say yes to in order to have the sort of single-minded focus and devotion to Christ that we're called to in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? And the church helps us. The church helps us with self-discipline through the way that the church does formative discipline, which is also called discipleship. And that's the second point for us today, formative discipleship. The church is called to this kind of formative discipline as well, the, the formative discipline of discipleship. And this is a central task of the church. In Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The encouragement in Hebrews 10 verse 25 and the verses surrounding it is to be devoted to the practice of meeting together with the members of the church body that this is one of the disciplines necessary for forming us appropriately. And and because we are meeting together, it means that the church can disciple. The church, the church through the preaching of the word and through the administration of the sacraments and through confession and assurance and through studying the Bible together, through small group, through church education, through life together, the church disciples. And the church forms our loves in these sorts of ways as we do these things together. Now you are what you love. The thing that you ultimately love is going to direct who you are. And the things that you ultimately love, that, those things are going to tell you who you will be. Your ultimate loves are always going to shape who it is that you are. And as you spend time with God's people, the, the correct habits of life and the correct practices of life and the correct loves are developed with and among and inside of us. This is the, pro, this is the process of, of formative discipline or the process of discipleship. You know, one of the things that, one of the things that you know is that I teach a class at Trinity Christian College. A number of my students are not Christians or are not practicing Christians. We, uh, we were talking about this very thing, about how what we love shapes us. And I asked for them to express to me what were the most fundamental lo- loves in their life. And for a substantial number of the students, one of their chief loves was their, their own health. And I was thankful for the honesty in how it was that they, that they articulated that to me. Because one of the things that I realized is that for those of us who are here who might profess that Christ Jesus is our deepest or truest or greatest love, which, which he must be, which he should be. Sometimes our habits or practices of life seem like we are far more focused on our own enjoyment or our own health or our own desires than we are 
doing the things that please God. And so it's important for us to ask the question, well, how is it? What do I love? And what do I express that I love through my habits and practices? Because the things that you give yourself to doing, those are the things that are going to form you and cultivate and develop your loves. And so if you, if you claim to love your family, right? If you claim that, that after Christ Jesus, your family is the most important thing to you, but you don't spend time with your family, it indicates that that is actually not one of your chief loves, and you won't be loving and you won't grow in love towards your family. Or if you indicate that God's word is one of your chief loves, but you're never in it, then your own life and habits are going to direct you away from it instead of toward it. But as we, as a part of God's people, come together, and as we engage in habits that are very different from the way that the world operates and lives, we find our own hearts and loves cultivated. We find ourselves to be discipled so that we follow after the Lord Jesus more and more and more and more completely. And so this formative discipline or this discipleship, this is a part of, this is a part of Christian life, and this is one of the things that the church does. And it does it through these, through these ordinary means preaching and sacraments and study together and confessing our sins and and hearing the assurance of pardon. I mean, every time that happens in the service, do you realize how, like, countercultural that is, that we confess sins? That we come together, that we sing praise to God, and that we take some time and we're like, Lord, I gotta tell you something. I'm a sinner. It's a countercultural thing. And then to hear, hear assurance, you're a great savior, but You're a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. You are what you love. The things that are your ultimate loves will direct who you are. And your loves are formed by your habits and practices and give yourself fully to the life of the church and to being discipled by it and you will come to love the Lord more. And remove yourself from fellowship and and you'll fall away gradually. You'll come, come to love other things more. And when people fall away in evident ways, there is the need for what might be the most difficult for us, and that's church discipline. And church discipline follows the pattern that's given to us by our Savior in Matthew chapter 18. It's what we read at the very beginning of our time together. Let me work my way through the logic of Matthew 19 now for a little bit. Matthew 19, starting at verse 15, tells us the starting point of any kind of church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The first part of any kind of church discipline is individual confrontation from one Christian to another. And you see someone that is a dear brother or a dear sister that's in sin. And when that happens, if there is this clear, consistent, open sin that you see your dear brother or your dear sister in, one way that you love them is through a gracious and godly and biblical confrontation. Matthew 18 shows us that. And it shows us there's a purpose to this. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, is what Matthew 18, 15 says. The hope is to gain this person back from their sin. It is loving. It is a loving friend who is willing to confront you. If you're someone who has been confronted by another friend, you need to, we need to recognize this is a loving act, a deeply loving act. Proverbs chapter 27 tells us this. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That is so insightful. What Proverbs 27 tells you is that it is an enemy of yours that will just continue to affirm whatever it is that you do in your lifestyle. It is your enemy who tells you, you do you. You just keep up doing that thing. It is a friend who's willing to say words that might be wounding for the sake of healing. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend might say, 
a hard word to you, but that hard word is loving, and a soft word of affirmation of sin is hateful. A true friend doesn't stab you in the back. A true friend stabs you in the front. That's the way that it works. And sometimes this is the way of godly confrontation. Confrontation is the way to love a dear brother or a dear sister. Let me, let me give you one example of this. When I was a freshman in college, I was in a Greek class. I was on my way to hopefully being a pastor. I did not have good study habits at that time, so I had fallen way behind, and my grades were suffering in a major way. And so I decided I was going to try to shortcut this. And we were given a quiz. I looked at the quiz. I didn't understand most of those squiggles on the page in front of me, and so I had no idea how I was going to answer it. But I knew that the person who sat right in front of me was the best Greek student in the class. And so I looked and I copied his answers. I got the quiz back. I got 100% on that quiz. And later that week, later that week, a friend of mine, my buddy Will Haslam, who was in the same class as me, he came up to my dorm room. We, he was sitting on my bed. I was sitting in my chair. And he goes, oh, this is awful. This is awful. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Man, I saw you cheating on that Greek quiz. You need to tell our professor and you need to take a zero on that quiz. He was right. What I had done was wrong. What I had stolen, I cheated, I lied, all of those things. And so, it was still during the day, I knew that Dr. Lanzma's office hours were during that time, and I said, Will, thank you. So I went to Dr. Lanzma's office, and I knocked on the door, and he told me to come in, and I sat down, and I said, Dr. Lanzma, um, I cheated on that quiz, you need to give me a zero. And so he did. And that zero on that Greek quiz in, uh, in freshman year of college is the best grade I've ever received. Because here's what happened, is that I realized, like, okay, Will confronted me in this godly way. He showed me my error. I know that if I want to start improving, I need to put in the work and change my habits so that I can do this on my own without cheating or stealing. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, Visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook, Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, may God bless you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.